This is Josh Denny from Ginormous Food on the Food Network, and you're listening to my favorite podcast about food, beverage, and hospitality, Herd. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Please take a second to subscribe on iTunes, and for future episode information and additional content, head over to HerdPodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at HerdPodcast. and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to, to subscribe to Herd through the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you get your podcasts. If you want to go one step further, write a review and let us know what you think. I'm Joe Hakeem. And today I'm joined by Nick. Hello. Jason. Hey. And our special guest, fellow podcast host, stand-up comedian with a huge appetite and host of food, the Food Network show, Ginormous Food, Josh Denny. Josh, thanks for being with hey, us. Hey, everybody. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Josh, you're a stand-up comedian and a Food Network TV show host. What came first, food or comedy? Well, it's hard to say. It's probably chicken and egg, right? <laughs> but I'd say food ever since I was a little guy. Were your parents good cooks? Did they cook at home a lot? Not my parents, per se, but everyone else in my family was pretty good. I had an aunt that was a really great cook, and, and my older sisters are all really, really great cooks. So I, I spent a lot more time eating their food than my parents. Was it potentially your parents' cooking that led you to comedy? <laughs> it could have been, or maybe their <laughs> lack of, of cooking, for sure. But then that would have made me a comedian because my parents did not cook very well. And you're not funny at all. Yeah, because I'm not funny. <laughs> I appreciate comedy. <laughs> so where did the idea come to kind of uh, f from going from comedy to food, back to food, or however the, the sequence went? Where did the idea come for Ginormous Food? Well, Ginormous Food was really kind of a collaboration uh, between myself and our production company, Lucid Media, and then some executives at, uh, at Travel Channel and Food. So it was kind of a, you know, it's kind of a buffet of ideas, if you will. And, um, but I, I got really into the, the sort of the world of food hosting through my podcast, March of the Pigs, um, where I would take other comedians or actors out to lunch or they would take me out to lunch and we would just kind of share favorite places, favorite foods, you know, food memories, things like that. And, um, you know, our production found that a few years ago and, and just started talking to me about show ideas and show concepts and, and um, about a year later, we got started on what's now known as ginormous food. So why why is there such a like fixation on this idea of like these big foods? So I um, take the uh, Louisville uh, episode for example with this that huge Godfather sub, right? It's like ten pounds of food or whatever it might have been. Um, what what is the what is it all presentation at that point? Is it is it there more to it than that? Well, I think, you know, I think for some people, I think it's different for everybody. 
I think some people like the concept of food as a spectacle. I think that's sort of what made Man vs. Food a very popular show is just the idea of, of who on earth would potentially try to eat these things. Um, but as, as, we've, as we've done more episodes and we showcase more styles and, and more types of ginormous food, I think some people get a little bit more interested in the techniques it takes to be able to make some of these things, the size that they are, some of the science behind it, and, and really some of the motivation. And there's some pretty cool uh, methods and some pretty cool technologies that people have had to come up with to be able to make these ginormous dishes. And so I, I think as the show progresses, you'll see more and more focus on maybe the technique and the technology that goes into, you know, how do you make a 20-pound donut? And so I think some of that is very interesting for people, too. Give us an example of one of, more, one of the more unique cooking apparatuses that had to be employed for one of the pieces. Well, the donut in, in the Tucson episode, it's Stray Dogs. I mean, they, they had to find a way to be able to drop, a, you know, a 10-pound uh, donut half into the deep fryer. And so they made sort of this, uh, it's, it's almost like a medieval a pulley system or like a medieval elevator. So they have this way of being able to drop it down and hold it into the deep fryer level so that it cooks evenly. And then they pull it up, flip it over and then drop it back down again. So they actually have to cook each half the exact same amount of time so that it's not unevenly cooked. Um, and, the and the, the little sort of pulley system that uh, they use was invented by the chef there, uh, Andre. So that's one. And, and then there's also, you know, some culinary techniques that I thought were really, really neat that we picked up in this season as well. So when we were in uh, Columbia, South Carolina at Bourbon, uh, Chef Christian Nimi made this giant biscuit. And I had no idea. I was like, how on earth can you make a biscuit this big without overworking the dough? And um, he showed us this really cool technique for shaving cold sticks of butter uh, into the dough so that you don't have to mix it at all. And he uses like a cheese shredder and ice cold butter and just shreds it throughout the dough as you just lightly turn it so that there's butter throughout, but you don't, uh, you don't have to overwork it at all. You really don't have to work it period. So once you kind of coat the entire thing with the shredded butter, it's ready to go. You put it in the oven and these things rise like perfect biscuits, even though they're the size of a you know a manhole cover, as we say in the episode. So there's some really neat techniques that go into, you know, how do you do this? Because that's a technique that works for biscuits, even if you're not making you know a five pound biscuit. So so the the question that um, seems to come to mind with with these big foods is that the, these restaurants are these all regular menu items that that anyone can get at any point in time, or or, or do they create them specially for the show? Um, these would seem it's, like it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. So some of these things are, are are dishes that people have already perfected, and they do them for catering. Some I'd say maybe like one in five uh, on our show are actually eating, you know, food challenge things that they do. But in some cases, uh, it's a favorite dish of theirs that you know, as our casting team researches, they find out this is something that people love, and we'll challenge them to see if they can come up with. Um, you know, a ginormous version of that dish and see if they actually can do it. Now, I always felt like that the casting process for the show would be a fun show in itself to really see how these people, uh, you know, through trial and error and, and figuring it out, you know, come up with the ways to do these ginormous dishes because there's a lot of creativity behind it once we get there and see the finished product. 
also sounds like a great web extra or something that you could use uh, as well for the show. Yeah, I mean, I would love to. I mean, and to me, there's a little bit of like, you know, that old show Monster Garage. There's a little bit of that, the culinary aspect to it as well, because, you know, every time I go there and I talk to these guys, they go like, how did you how did you figure this out? And they're just like, man, it was a lot of late nights and beers. <laughs> so, you know, these guys are just hanging out in their kitchens going, how can we put 30 pounds of sausage on this thing without it without it falling apart? And, uh, you know, so there's some really, really cool, uh, there's really cool stories behind the making of these dishes. You could almost do a behind the scenes show of just how these dishes are actually, you know, conceptualized and executed, you know, forget about just the, the travelogue aspects of the show. So there's, there's, you know, some, and some of them, when it comes down to, uh, stuff that people have done for a long time, like the 62 inch pizza at Big Lou's in San Antonio, you know, a lot more of the story is just, you know, why is this your business model? You guys make giant pizzas all the time. And so, you know, sometimes when we have those situations, we try to dive a little bit more into the story around the restaurant and, um, you know, the, the whole package versus just that specific dish. And in terms of each show, I've noticed that um, you do kind of the three place model where you'll you'll visit one one place and another, then the third place and the third place usually there's like a longer spotlight, it seems like. So you have two dishes from the third place and maybe one from each of the first two. How is that? Mm-hmm. How is that determined? How do you determine which place gets that kind of extra little bit of time? That's that's where the Food Network executives come in. So that's real. I couldn't begin to tell you how they decide on that. I mean, we we will probably rough cut them that way based on just which restaurants we thought had the coolest food. Maybe it maybe it can come down to what restaurant personality was the most engaging. And then, you know, cause it's kind of like an Abbott and Costello two man team. If we get into a place and the food's amazing, but we have uh, an owner that's kind of quiet or, or kind of tense or gets nervous. And it's very hard cause we will Skype interview and we'll have people that are just like super high energy, super engaging, great at talking about their food. But then when you get there on the day of taping and there's cameras and lights set up, they just go into a shell. And vice versa, we've had some people that seem very um, tight when we interview them, and then we get there, and we, you know, we got to be like, all right, man, like let's wrap it up. We need to move into the next segment. So it's a combination of things that determine um, the order. And sometimes it can just come down to if if we we we'll do two favorite dishes and a ginormous dish at every restaurant, but if one of the favorite dishes at a restaurant is too similar to another ginormous dish that we've already done in the season, then we'll cut that uh, just because we don't want to be super redundant. Um, So sometimes it's just at the mercy of what else we've cast throughout the season. So you you have, we're into the, we're into the season. Um, We have Detroit coming up this week, which is is kind of one of the reasons why we brought you in. What other, um, what other places do you have kind of after Detroit? What other cities do we have to look forward to? So we're kind of at the tail end of the season. We only have four episodes left. We have Detroit coming up this Friday, and then uh, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Mobile, Alabama. Nice. So, um, what uh, in terms of I want to go back to the the idea of like the the owners and the personalities. Do any owners st- stand out to you in the first two seasons that you've done? Oh, big time! Yeah, I mean, there's there's guys and, and gals that have been just an absolute trip and, and a lot of fun to work with. I mean, I always describe it as these are people that could have their own shows. 
but you know Henry at uh, Henry's Louisiana Grill in Ackworth, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. You know he's one of the biggest characters you'll ever meet, and and definitely one of our favorite people to film with. Henry actually opened his restaurant up to us when we were um, conceptualizing the show. So we the original name of the show was like Mission Mega Food. We were developing this with Courtney and Neil at Travel, and uh, we went to Henry's because of his personality. And um, we shot our sizzle, which basically is like our pre-pilot pitch there. So it was really cool after the show got picked up to be able to go back to Henry's and actually shoot a segment that would air in our premiere episode for season two. But, you know, this guy, he's, he's just a wild man. He's, he's born and raised in Louisiana and now lives in a small town outside of Atlanta and Georgia. And he has the best restaurant in town and one of the best restaurants in the Atlanta area. Um, he was great, and then uh, you know Maria Maison in uh, Tucson at at uh, Boca Tacos y Tequila. I mean, she is uh, she's a character as well, just a really really funny personality. I mean, there's a lot. I could probably go through almost every episode and come up with one or two people that that really stood out that were really great personalities. Do you do you do research and just reach out to people? Is there an application process? It's open to anybody that can. They can try to be on the show. How does that work? Well, in the be- in the beginning, it was all us reaching out to places, and now that the show's been on for a while, I sort my email inbox sort of becomes a collecting, uh, sort of like a collection box for all of the submissions because there's not really a formal submission process. So I'll just immediately forward a lot of those things on to casting, and and we've you know in season two, we actually went to a few places that submitted to me in season one. Um, but it, it just sort of boils down to the luck of the draw. Like, you know, we don't want to do 30 burgers. We don't want to do, you know, 20 pizzas inside of a season. So the, the difficulty is in, in making sure that we're staying, you know, unique enough and covering enough unique types of dishes. So you've got the whole season planned out ahead of time. Um, yeah, it's it's a little, it's a, it's a, we're a little in front of it. I wouldn't say, I mean, I can tell you we're doing four holiday specials here. We start filming in a couple of weeks, and I have no idea if we even have our restaurants picked out for those yet. So I'm sure we're pretty close on that, but it can come down to the wire. And we've had last-minute substitutions where we've changed a restaurant before, like two days before we get to the city to film. So in, in the research that you guys do, does someone travel to these places and try their food beforehand to, to make sure that it's like at least good? No, we that, we really rely on Yelp and, and local feedback from people. So we'll go on their Facebook pages. We'll check out their ratings. We'll see what people are saying. We'll look at Yelp. Uh, but our casting team really starts with, when we know the cities we want to go, they'll reach out to their friends and family in that area and go, what are the places that we have to go? And and I, I, I you know, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the most perfect way to do it, but we haven't been to a single restaurant yet where we're like, man, this is awful. We shouldn't be here. <laughs> So that we've been pretty lucky that way, and that's yeah, I think that's all on our casting team. So in uh, the Detroit uh, episode description, you, you, there's two items that uh, are mentioned: something called the Big Dog, and something called the Punisher. Uh, let's talk about the Big Dog first. Where did you have the Big Dog? Oh, uh, was it Stash International? Which is uh, right by the market there. I'm drawing a blank on what the name of that market is. Is it Eastern Market? Yep, Eastern Market. Yep. Yeah, yeah, right there. So, is that something they did special for you, or is that something that uh, that people can order if they go in there? You know, I think that's one that they 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 actually do because they they make those sausages uh, all the time. 
So I'm not sure if that was like a supersized version of a normal thing, but I mean, they, I'm pretty sure. And, and this is the other thing too. A lot of these places may not make these regular menu items before the show, but if they're smart, they'll make them after the show because it, there's a flood of people that come in looking for these dishes. And, and while that one's big, it's, it's not like an unbelievably big thing to where a couple people couldn't have knocked that out. I actually felt like that's one of the ones that I could have eaten the entire thing on because of how good it was. And their mustard there was amazing. And then what about the Punisher? Where was that? The Punisher is at uh, Garrido's in um, Gross Point. Uh, was it Gross Point Woods, I think? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, they, they it's like a giant arepa. So it's a Venezuelan food. And they actually do a lot of South American cuisine there. So the, the owners are Venezuelan, but uh, they do Brazilian food. They do some Argentinian food. So... Uh, it's kind of like a cool blending of all the South American uh, different types of cuisine down there. And uh, the Punisher is just a giant arepa. So it's it's loaded with plantains and, and chicken and, and uh, avocados. And, and, and that was really, really good. Interestingly, um, I've been there a number of times and uh, they, they have gone the route of doing other kind of ginormous foods. They have um, like a whole menu of hot chocolates that they do that have like the really uh, uh, extravagant garnishes. So I wonder if after this episode uh, airs, they're going to roll out a, a uh, like a whole menu of these things. A kind of like to yep. Wow. And I I think that's kind of an inevitable thing when you have a show like ours. I, I remember hearing from the folks who travel. They were explaining, you know, when when Man vs. Food came out, within like a year or two, there were thousands of restaurants that came up with eating challenges because of the popularity of that show. And I think you'll see some of that with us, too. We're already seeing it. I don't know if you guys saw it, but there were probably a million people sharing this Thrillist video of them making like a 20-pound uh, bagel sandwich in Jersey. Um, and I and it landed in my inbox last week about 100 times. With different people <laughs> like, hey, did you see this? And I go, see it? You know, I was at the restaurant that did it the first time. These, <laughs> these guys probably saw our episode, and then they're just making the exact same thing. So, you know, you're getting a lot of – we're already getting copycats and, and other people that are, are kind of taking to ginormous food, you know, for the opportunity to, to get some coverage. Yeah, marketing. Great marketing. Right. So you had one more visit in Detroit, which is Paisai? Yeah, Paisai. And that's where actually we connected up. And yeah. um, they did a pizza lasagna. Does that sound right? Yeah, it's called – it's the super creative name, Pizzanya. <laughs> well that's if it spills it's pizza on you <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and it's impossible to eat without getting pizza on you. <laughs> so what was that what uh kind of explain what the uh composition it's, uh, of that it, really complex it's two detroit style pizzas with two whole lasagnas piled on top a little bit of uh, arugula and microgreens and then uh one of my favorite parts about this dish was they make like a butternut squash aioli, and they just cover the entire pizza with that, which is kind of weird looking because it looks like mustard. But um, oh man, was that good! That that made the whole dish. They do a great job over there. They're they, and they do so many. So I'm going to call them and ask them if they deliver. <laughs> on bikes, so they deliver pizzas on bikes in the area. So I'm going to call them and see if they'll deliver that via bicycle to my apartment. <laughs> That when you for you to tell me that they deliver pizza on bikes does not surprise me at all. When we got there, I thought, man, I thought there were hipsters at Stash, <laughs> but these guys, 
Uh, yeah, I believe they would be delivering some pizzas on bikes for sure. So when when you're in a town, uh, how long were you here in Detroit? Uh, four days, I think. You know, kind of four days total because we'll, we'll, when we don't have a long drive, we'll get in you know, around noon on the travel day before we start filming. Then we've got three filming days, and we'll probably leave around noon or 1 o'clock uh, when we head to the next city. Do you visit anywhere else, while, like uh, any other restaurants while you're around, or do, do you just eat at the one place since you're eating these uh, ginormous foods? Well, it sort of really depends. We didn't go out a lot in Detroit because our crew ended up having to stay at a different hotel than, um, than we were staying at, so our two camera guys were a little bit outside of Detroit, and then the rest of us were in um, – right at the uh, Anthenium Hotel downtown. And um, and the weather, if you remember, it was a little rainy and, and cold out when we were there, so, and which none of us had packed or prepared for. So um, we, were, we were pretty, and that was at the end of a run as well, so we pretty much stuck to, um, you know, getting around to the places. But I had some friends locally there and, and went out and checked out. There was this amazing pizza that's like inside of a bowling alley attached to a concert venue in downtown Detroit. Yeah. Um, Sergeant Pepperoni's. And I, yes, that's the one. Yep. And uh, it was like one of the most random places I've ever been where somebody's like, you got to try their pizza. I was like, is this really going to be good? But it was great. That's uh, that's actually one of the most historic spots in the city. It's the, um, lo- it oldest, the oldest continuously operating bowling alley in the country. Is it? Or, yep. Yeah, it is. Yep. Yeah, so that's um, so you visited a very historic place while you were here too. Yeah, and I, I wanted to try to get the whole crew out there to go bowling the night before we left town, but uh, you know they were everybody was pretty wiped at the end of that run. I'm just imagining like Victrolas and like all that neon, you know, like in the 40s. No, no, no. Yeah, it was definitely, <laughs> but it was cool. I mean, you know, to to see a play, and they had great music, great tunes playing in there. A lot of like, you know, eighties new wave and punk music, and so it, so it was it was like being in a time machine. And of course, my mom's side of the family is from Michigan, and I remember growing up there. They were like ten years behind where I lived on the East Coast in terms of trends and everything. Anyway, so uh, I went there with a friend of mine, and she was like, "Yeah, this is." Uh, it's like super nostalgic. I go, is it nostalgic or is this just where you guys are at? In <laughs> uh, so it, it seems to me like with this, with the ginormous food that um, your background in comedy, some of these, some of these foods seem like comedically uh, or comically as a case, maybe large. Um, is, is that how this kind of like, do you ever find that? Is it like almost laughable sometimes when someone's something's placed in front of you? Oh, definitely. I mean, and some of these things are just ridiculous. I mean, some of these guys get, and there's, I think one of the challenges for, um, with all the, no pun intended, but with all the cooks in the kitchen on making decisions for the show, one of the challenges is I think sometimes my reactions um, might scare some of our executives because they don't want me to, they really don't want me to talk about if something is unhealthy or gluttonous because most of the negative response to the show is the belief that it is that. But there are some of these things where you're just like, come on, guys, like we're putting donuts and cheesecake in this <laughs> and it's a lasagna. You know, so there's just like uh, there's definitely some things where you can't help but laugh at, the, at, at how they put this stuff together. And and I think there's a lot of humor there. And, and sometimes, you know, a lot of the maybe jokes or the comments I'll make on those dishes don't make it into the edits because 
you know, there's that concern about the perception and, and about sending the message. But, you know, at the end of the day, these dishes are about fun and they're about getting groups of people to, to come together and take these food adventures and go to these places together. I, I'm back in Vegas now doing stand-up shows all weekend. And I was, um, I went to the restaurant we covered in the episode, Truffles and Bacon Cafe. They made a huge burger for us called the Belly of the Beast, which is on their menu. But the second I walked in, there was a family of like five people that had come there because they had seen the show and they wanted to share the Belly of the Beast. And so this was like, this was like a, a destination thing. They came to Vegas and they're like, we're doing this. We're going here and we're doing this. And so these are great things for these businesses. It's a lot of fun for groups of people. Um, so whether you think the show's gluttonous or wasteful in any capacity, it's, it's doing what it's intended to do, which is getting people excited to go out and try new foods. And if they need to make a 20-pound burger to get you to come try their food, I think that's a cool thing to do. Yeah, I think um, the way uh, Generous Food is set up versus the way Man vs. Food kind of presented these things um, – Man versus food seemed like a, a more kind of gluttonous kind of uh, setup where he was, you know, at a rich single room. guy. He was a single guy yeah. trying to trying to overcome these like you know huge food uh, challenges. Whereas with you, um, I never get the I never get the the uh, I never assume that you're eating the whole dish. That this uh, you know. Uh, 15 pound arepa that's coming out to you is going to be consumed all by you. It makes sense that uh, people would want to go and share these things. And I think that you do a pretty good job of um, presenting that as the narrative rather than, Hey, you know, come in, you know, uh, gorge yourself on this huge cheesecake. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing is I think a lot of the people that react that way have actually just never seen the show. They just see a fat redheaded guy sitting behind a 20 pound bagel and they just go, Oh yeah, he's going to eat all that. <laughs> dad bod, dad so it's funny. I, I, I talk about it in my act at up. I go, the people that don't like my show, you know, say that it's gluttonous and, and wasteful and an, an attempt to virtue signal and say, Hey, I'm a better person. I would never do this, but it's really just fat shaming in disguise. <laughs> well, and you, and you go as far as to, uh, actually invite people to try the food after it comes out, right? I think I've seen that in a couple of the episodes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's still an eating component. And it's funny, there's some people out there that think that my bites are fake or that I, you know, I'm, I'm taking, like, one bite. But, but Nick can tell you, while we're filming these, these pieces, like, you know, I'll take four or five bites of the ginormous dish and then come up with different explanations and different – and you're always catching different flavors. You're thinking on the fly. So I'll probably eat you know, a good chunk of, of what we're doing, but we're not putting all that into the episode. It's a 22 minute episode. And, and our show is really about the food, you know, man versus food was about Adam and about what Adam could do and what he could accomplish. But this is really about showcasing the food. So we're sort of in and out of these places. The average segment runs from six to eight minutes. So we don't have time to sit there and watch me take 10 bites of the ginormous dish. And we really want to see what other people in the restaurant think of these dishes too. How much filming goes into each segment? Like, uh, how, how much? Uh, how long is sh- location shoot? You're yeah. saying? How long is location shoot? Yeah, it's eight to twelve hours in each restaurant. So it just sort of depends on the the challenges we face. If it's a small kitchen, if there's a lot of process involved with the dish, you know, we film a lot of stuff, and and it really just gets cut into a very very small amount of footage. So. 
So anywhere between eight to 12 hours of footage um, in the locations, probably about four hours of shooting B-roll for the city in each location. And then we probably spend about another four hours doing um, the episode intros, the, the different sort of me walking around the city and talking about food and some of that stuff. So I'd say overall, probably about 40 to 44 hours per episode of filming. And then that ends up into a 22 and a half minute episode. So two hours per minute of footage, if you think about that. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah, Not exactly. mentioning editing time or any of all that other stuff, too. Oh, yeah, weeks, weeks. So, I mean, I can tell you we were up against it to deliver these episodes on time for season two. Um, Detroit, I, I can't remember, Nick, when were we there? Um, uh, May? Like the end of April? Um, yeah, April, May, yeah. The end of yeah. April, beginning of May, and that epi- those episodes are already airing now. Which is so from fast. From that run of filming. That is so flipping fast. Yeah, so you're, we're talking a six to eight week, you know, literally from, from tape to delivery. Uh, time, which is a super fast turnaround. And I think some of some of our challenges in editing this season have come down to that, have come down to the quick delivery. And I think at some point where we might have spent more time and got more people's opinions on what foods to cut, what segments to show, I mean, all that goes out the window when you have a six-week delivery time. Mm-hmm. It's just, let's let's get an episode together, let's get the best of what we can get on the first couple passes and, and deliver it. So, and there have been some times where I'm like, oh man, we cut this dish. That was great. But it's just, it's, it's one of those things where we're sort of at the mercy of having to make decisions a lot faster than we normally would like to. I would say average is normally closer to 14 to 16 weeks. Yes. So yeah. you can see that's twice as fast trying to bang that out. Are, are you involved in the editing at all? Sort of in hindsight. So I, I'm involved in the editing from the perspective of just the broad strokes if I see a cut of an episode I don't like, usually it's too late for them to change it. But uh, I'll sort of have a little bit more of a broad conversation about these are the things I'd like us to stay away from, and these are the things I'd like us to do more of. And uh, at the end of the day, that's not necessarily up to me. That'll come down to Steven, who's at Scripps, who's our showrunner, and and uh, you know we're sort of at the mercy of what's happening there. And, and Nick, you can probably attest to this. I mean, with every leadership change at Scripps or at Food, Everybody has a new idea of what the shows need to be successful. And so you're sort of always at the mercy of which way the wind is blowing. Of Do we want to be more informational? Do we want to be more fun? That's never the one that gets picked, by the way. Uh, <laughs> do we want to be more focused on food? So, you know, and, and me being a comedian, naturally, if there's funny moments, that's what I want to show. But it's Food Network and the focus is on showing the food. And so a lot of times my favorite pieces will get cut. Uh, to show a little bit more of the food porn shots, so to speak, um, than maybe I would put in the edit if it were up to me. So, you know, it's one of those things where when you have this size of a collaboration, you know, you can kind of say your piece and put it in, and, and that's that. But I definitely have favorite episodes because of that, like the Pittsburgh episode. If you ask me what's the perfect episode of our show that we've done so far, it would be the Pittsburgh episode. And, and why do you say that? Well, it's really just a matter of the flow the shots. I think we had the right diversity of food. We lucked out with owners. So we had really funny owners and we were able to get some really funny stuff between me and them. Um, And and just the way it was cut together. I think there was the perfect balance in that episode of comedy, of food, of, uh, and of warmth. And I think warmth is a really important thing for me. That's what I'm looking for when I watch all of the other shows like ours. 
And it comes down to little details, like how much is us looking down at the table and talking ingredients? That doesn't feel warm to me as a viewer. So I, I like edits where there's a lot more of the engagement between me and the, and the owner. So it's, it's up on our faces and you're seeing excitement and enthusiasm and passion about food. And to me, um, that, that's the difference. You know, I, I'll watch like Incredible Edible America with Jeff and Audrey. And 90% of the time, they're just looking down at the table and, and, re, and just talking through the process. And, and to me, as a, as, a, as a real food guy, I'm like, man, show me some excitement. Show me some enthusiasm. Like, I want to see you jacked to eat whatever this is that you're about to eat. And, um, you know, sometimes I feel like with, with some of the shows, the, the hosts are just sort of going through the motions. And, and if you're not engaged and excited to eat it, I'm not going to be engaged and excited to get in my car and go there. So that's really what I try to put into the scenes. And I really hope that our editors do a, a good job of bringing that out and showing that stuff, because I do think that's the difference maker for people going to these places and not going to these places. There's a couple different series based on food and cooking, um, and it's like best thing I ever ate. And I, I really appreciate that show because there's a combination of like some really, really good food porn, a little bit of background story, and then you're seeing the reactions of um, the chefs that they interview talking about this food, and you really get so much excitement from them seeing that. So I, I totally get where you're coming from talking about kind of hyping the food almost, you know, because you can't yeah. taste it through the TV. You, we are totally yeah. based on what are you saying? What are you emoting? What are you feeling? Um, that's the only way you can communicate what's in front of you as the talent. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, for time purposes, they are just, I, I, I get really annoyed when they just cut to the first thing I say, which is a lot of time, like it's amazing or delicious. But then I'll elaborate. And for time purposes, so many times they'll cut, they'll cut off what, I, what my feedback is at that. So then you'll go online and people go, oh, is everything just amazing and delicious? That's the extent <laughs> of your food vocabulary. So it's like, oh, man, I, I'd probably say – I'd probably talk for three minutes about these dishes and, and go into very specific detail on, on uh, texture. Texture is very big to me, probably more important than flavor. But I'll go into texture, I'll go into flavor, I'll go into maybe specific ingredients or techniques that are used in the dish that come through in the flavor. But again, 22 and a half minutes, three restaurants, and talking about the actual city itself, that's the first stuff that gets cut. And to me, it's the most important stuff in the show. So I don't know if it could get, I don't know if you can really get all the things I would love to get into a 22 minute episode. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the battle, that's the goal. Yeah, I, I agree with you about the uh, the whole idea of like using words like delicious and amazing. I, I mean, I know that they're um, they're kind of key in terms of like you know getting a point across on TV, but they they ultimately are meaningless because it's such a sure very so subjective, right? And so one of the things that I noticed about the food that you're eating is like the the kind of overwhelming nature of it. The, the presentation's really not the actual presentation of the food like in front of you, but like the the um the structure of it and like the setup um it's really it'd be really easy to um for something to be really dry or really uh just overdone uh in terms of cooking or temperature um have you noticed that at all with any of these foods do, do any of them just like do they not the, the the really big foods do they just not deliver on flavor and uh and texture well, they are, I feel like they always deliver on flavor. I think, um, 
I think our casting would be really way off. And, and, and so much of this, by the way, falls in the wheelhouse of our, our culinary producer, Chanel Baytuck. And so she's, she's just a beast when it comes to getting in the kitchen with these chefs and she'll be on the phone with them ahead of time. Like even as they're, if they're, if it's something they're building for the show, she'll be on the phone with them sort of helping them conceptualize things and saying like, well, if you're going to build this this way, you know, you can't do it the way you normally would because by the time this cooks, this other aspect of it is not going to be good. So she really is out in front of that stuff, even almost in a pre-production perspective, making sure that their concept isn't flawed from the get-go. And um, and then when she's there, she's really a, a sort of like an extra chef helping with the preparation. And, um, you know, we'll make two or three of these things throughout the course of the day for different functions of, of shooting. And so um, we're always trying to make sure we're getting it out to people as fresh and as hot as possible. Um, but that's not always the case with my food. So you got to take that into consideration, too. Um, and we don't want to make, you know, we're not cooking these to order. I'm not that much of a diva where I'm going, make it again before I eat it for camera. <laughs> so, and then sometimes these things take like, you know, six hours. If it's, if they're making like fresh baked bread or fresh baked biscuits, um, what's another thing that we did recently that just is a super long process. Oh, um, Oh, the, the, the meat uh, in the uh, Jewish deli that we did in Arizona, Chompies. I mean, their, their brisket process, their pastrami brisket process from start to finish is a 16-hour process. Same thing with a lot of this barbecue. So we really aren't going in there and, and truly doing from scratch. A lot of that stuff has to be started ahead of time, maybe even the day before we get there. So, um, yeah, there, there's, it, there's definitely a lot more. I think difficulty. And if you look at the shows, like, right, guy eats the food like right after it's prepared in the kitchen. Um, so there's no time for him to have any sort of degradation in flavor, consistency, in temperature. Um, whereas with ours, there's sort of this big grandiose reveal. And sometimes from the point of finishing uh, assembly in the kitchen to the reveal could be an hour and a half, depending on the logistics of the shot. So you just mentioned um, Chompies, and I and I uh, was listening to March of the Pigs in your episode with Mark Summers. You talk about Chompies there. Has March of the Pigs been an avenue for you to describe further what you tasted on ginormous foods that maybe the the editing out of descriptors in ginormous foods? Um, so does that make sense? The question, like to de- a deeper yeah, dive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and if you, I don't know how far back you went, but uh, in season one when we were doing Monday night uh, re-airings, uh, that hasn't happened this season because there's a lot new sh- a lot of new shows that are premiering on Monday now in that slot. But in the winter, we were re-airing our episodes at 10 p.m. on Mondays, and so I actually did a, a series of episodes called Bite Companion, which were sort of like an hour long commentary and behind the scenes on those episodes. Um, so if anybody's listening to this and they want that little bit more color on those first six episodes, that's uh, that's the best way to get it. But, yeah, I, I think any time um, on March of the Pigs, if, if we start talking about the show and, and, and it organically comes up, that you're you're always going to get a little bit more information, a little bit more detail, and, and sometimes a little bit of dirt if you're into that stuff. So. <laughs> Because you know the the finished product doesn't always show when things go wrong, and there's some pretty co- there's, there's definitely a comedy of errors sometimes with some of these dishes. And you know, I, I remember when we were casting season two after season one, and I go, guys, there's all these great ice cream sundays. We should do one of these sundays. 
And then we got to a place where we had to do a milkshake as a favorite in Tucson. And I learned very quickly why we don't pick ice cream. (laughs) It is impossible to shoot and work with. So when people go, man, why are all these cake shows? I want to see other desserts. Other desserts are not meant to be filmed. They're just not. Unless you're pumping liquid nitrogen over this stuff every 30 seconds, you're going to have to throw out and remake 25 Sundays just to get the footage you need by the time everything melts and mushes together. And of course, you're doing it in a nice cold city like Tucson. Right, exactly. Yeah. So even their walk-in isn't cold enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> so tell me like the, the dream cities. You know, now you've done this a couple times. Are there some like dream cities on the horizon that you're, you know, really itching to get to? Well, we are going to do, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but we are going to do New York for the holiday episodes. So we will be getting into some restaurants there. I think that's a big one. You know, New York has such a, a, cultural, a cultural mix uh, of cuisines that uh, I think we could have some really diverse segments there. Um, for me, the the Holy Trinity in, in Texas is a must. When I say that, I mean Houston, Austin, and Dallas. I feel like those are three cities I would love to visit. And then we haven't done really anything on the West Coast, so Los Angeles, San Francisco, and then even getting up into the Pacific Northwest, we'd love to do Seattle, Portland, and, and Vancouver. Uh, I think there's some really cool culinary stuff happening up in that part of the world, and, and we would love to, you know, to kind of get some of that stuff in there too. But the the cool thing about the way our casting has gone through this is that there's been a lot of surprises. So, like in Cleveland, we actually went to a sushi place and a Japanese steakhouse, which you would never think of when you think of Cleveland. But you know what I mean. So while we think like, oh, I would love to go to San Francisco because that's where all the great seafood restaurants will be. You know, we might go to San Francisco and find a place to make great Philly cheesesteaks. You know, so just it's one of those things where your predetermined idea of what kind of cuisines are going to be great in these cities might not be what we cover. And I think that's a fun aspect of the show, too. We went to a, a place called Beachside Seafood in Jacksonville, and they made this monster seafood burrito. And this restaurant is a seafood, a full blown seafood restaurant, but they're also a fish market and a seafood market. Um, and, but this restaurant was originally owned by people from Philadelphia and Jersey. And these guys made cheesesteaks there really, really good ones for like 25 years. So when the new owner took it over, he tried to take that off the menu because he's like, why would we sell Philly cheesesteaks <laughs> at a seafood restaurant and fish market? And when he did it, the customers almost mutinied. I mean, they freaked out. So he had to bring it back. And, and it's one of the things they do there. And it's r- completely random. You would never go into this place expecting to get a great cheesesteak. But boy, do they have one. All right. So I, I, you snuck Vancouver in there. Is the thought to go more international with stuff? I would love to. I mean, you know what's crazy about the show? And I was telling Nick when we were together in Detroit, it's, I don't know what the run rate is for shows going international so fast but they've they've aired our show now in australia canada and the uk mm-hmm. and there's a lot of, of fans from those parts of the world that are like hey when are you going to come film here so I, I mean i would love to make the show go international it is kind of adorable though when you see what other countries consider ginormous <laughs> there's a guy who owns a burger place in the uk who loves our show and uh, he, he'll send me YouTube videos of him creating ginormous burgers, and they're basically the equivalent of our regular burgers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's like, I put, I put two patties on there. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, and what's interesting is so Scripps a couple of years ago purchased a Polish company. So um, you, you could probably very easily go to Poland. And uh, how is your Polish? Oh, I would love that. Yeah. So. Yeah, I would love to go to Poland. All right, Josh, thanks for being with us. Can you tell everyone where, where we can find you online? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Josh Denny, uh, Josh Denny Official on Facebook, and everything else you can find at my website, joshdennycomedy.com. And then it's Ginormous Food. You can find that uh, at foodnetwork.com slash shows slash ginormous hyphen food. Uh, and you also host March of the Pigs, yes? Yeah, it's a podcast uh, on distributed by Blog Talk Radio, but you can listen to it on Stitcher iTunes, Spotify, I mean, anywhere you can listen to podcasts, we're on there. All right. And the Detroit episode of Ginormous Food airs on July 7th at what time? Uh, uh, 8, 7 Central, eight, always. So 8 Eastern, 7 Central, Central, 5 Pacific. On Food Network. Once again, Josh Jenny, thanks for being with us. Until Thank next- you, guys. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Until next time, dine well, friends. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate it. Um, could we have you do uh, like one little plug couple, just for the show? Yeah. A couple IDs. Yeah, sure. exactly. That'd be great. So hold on once. Do you want to do a separate file for this or what would be easier? Just so Dave doesn't get confused. We're just going to do a couple 